And let's pray. Father, open my mouth, mouth now that the words I say might be used by you to do us good and to open uh, the goodness of the scriptures to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, this is a sermon about speaking up and keeping quiet in church. And the first part of the passage is relatively straightforward. However, it may have struck you that there are some verses in the second part which might cause you to raise an eyebrow. I'm going to work through the passage in order. Now, Michelle and I love the TV show The West Wing. Hands up if you know this show. Oh, a good number. That's good. Well, if you don't know it, it's set in the White House and centred on the staff who work for the president. And Toby Ziegler is the grumpy, brilliant communications director in the White House for the president. And in one episode of The West Wing, he has to go and talk to an angry meeting of protesters in a hall. And he goes in there and he's got a kind of policewoman there to kind of sort out any trouble he might have. And he goes up on the stage and he's on the stage ready to kind of speak and to take questions. But down in the chairs, there's just this heaving, shouting, angry crowd waving banners. And they're completely disorganised and they cannot shut up long enough to hear anyone speak or say anything. And so Toby sits down on a chair, pulls a newspaper out of his pocket and begins to read it because he knows there's no work for me to do here because nobody can hear anything. No one can hear me speak. And he remarks to the policewoman how incompetent these young protesters are, that they can't even give me a hard time about anything because they're too busy shouting at one another. Not like when he was young, says Toby. I mean, we knew how to protest back then. Anyway, the point is, a completely disordered assembly achieves nothing. If you cannot hear people speak, then the purposes of a meeting cannot be achieved. I mean, it's okay for a crowd on a dance floor if you can't have a conversation because it's too noisy, dark, and everyone's, you know, whooping and cheering. Because there, speaking and hearing are not the point. Dancing is the point. But church is not supposed to be like a dance floor or a shouting mob. It's supposed to be centred on words, words that are spoken for all to hear. A series of offerings of speech of different kinds. And so as we read in the opening of this passage, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, when you come to church, each of you has a hymn, or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. There is a little picture of what church is about. People bringing their gifts to be offered and shared, an experience of shared words, in fact. The hymn that we sing and savour together. The instruction that we receive together, the revelation that's shared with us all, the tongue speaking together with its interpretation, these words are brought to build up others in the church, to encourage, to enlighten, to exhort, to exhort one another with the words that the Spirit enables us to contribute. And so, because of all that, 
church needs turn taking. And that means there is a time to speak and there is a time to keep quiet. And Paul also regulates tongue speaking because it seems as though in the Corinthian churches no such turn taking existed. They didn't know when it was time to keep quiet, they just spoke at length and over the top of each other perhaps. But Paul says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak. Let's not have a big queue from the lectern all the way down the aisle because everybody wants to have a go. No, two or at most three, that's enough. And someone must interpret if it's tongues because it must be a shared act of communication that can be comprehended and benefited from. If there is no interpreter, therefore, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. So what's shared in church has to be understandable. And if it's not understandable, it's not for church. It may be good, as tongues is, but it's not for everyone to hear in church. Paul also regulates prophecy. So he says two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Prophecy is not a free-for-all. Any prophecy offered must be weighed, must be discriminated, must be assessed by others. And prophecy is not this kind of ecstatic gift that falls upon you and takes over so that you cannot be interrupted. Paul says the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. Prophets are not out of control and unable to regulate their speech. No. Why is this? Because God, the God who gives this gift, is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Now, St Edmund's is, I must say, a very orderly affair. There is not a lot of heckling. And there are no cues that tend to form at this lectern during the service of people who want to get up and have some tongues with an interpretation or revelation to share. There are no clusters of people in the different corners of the church listening as some prophet holds forth on some topic. I mean, maybe you do wish it were a little more like that. You think this is a little staid and sedate for your tastes. But the fact is, we're a very orderly bunch. And so disorder, as was in the Corinthians situation, is perhaps not quite the issue for us as it was for them. So what will we take away from this part of the passage? Well, what we might perhaps take note of is how church is a team effort. What shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. And so the choir come here on a Friday and they rehearse so that when we come, they bring the hymns and songs that we can all join in with. We together lift our voices in praise to God. This is a team effort. Someone leads the service and welcomes us and reminds us of why we are here and leads us in our thanksgiving, our confession, our praise. Someone reads the Bible and they've prepared for that, I hope. (laughs) 
that they've read the passage ahead of time and they've prayed that God would help them to bring this reading in a way that it speaks to people. It's understandable and encouraging. So as people prepare with, uh, and read with clarity and expression and faith, intending to bless the congregation, when they say at the end, hear the word of the Lord, they're offering their gift to the congregation. Someone, usually me, gives a sermon aiming to bring out what is in the scriptures for our instruction and encouragement. We speak to one another before the service, during the service, as we say together the creed, as we give the liturgical responses. We, after the service, might ask questions and share troubles and encourage each other out of our common faith in Christ and our hope in God. So church is a team effort and all these words which we all bring all contribute to that upbuilding of one another. We both give and receive when we come to church. We come to hear God's word, to pray, to praise God together, to share together at the Lord's table. We also come, I hope, to minister, to contribute, to build others up. And so, as Paul said elsewhere in Colossians 3, he said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. If we're going to do this, we need the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. So we need to learn the word of Christ, the message, the gospel of Jesus. What is it? How does it work? What difference does it make to life? We all need to know the answers to those questions. And, even better, we all need to be able to talk about those things and share them and apply them, give them to others. So as we sharpen each other with that rich word in all wisdom. So let me just put in another little plug for the small groups because this is a place where we can come together and do the same thing as we come together. We bring something. We open up the Bible. We ask a question. We give an answer. We share our story. We make an observation. We listen to one another, share about our lives. And we try to say, what we think, what would Jesus have to say? What does the scriptures have to say that I can use to help this person, to build them up? This is to be our task together. And we learn to sharpen one another in it with all wisdom. All right. That's the easy part of the passage. Let's go to verses 34 and 35. These verses um, are also about speaking and silence and order. And on the face of it, verse 34 and 35, simply prohibit women from speaking in church, from addressing the assembly, on the grounds that it is inappropriate and in fact disgraceful. And I say on the face of it because Paul has already written something in this letter about women speaking in church. And in 1 Corinthians 11, he regulates prayer and prophecy for men and women. He does not silence women, but requires them to cover their heads when they pray or prophesy. We read in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 11, Every man 
who prays or prophesies with his head covered, dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. And so implicit in that regulation for head coverings is the understanding that both men and women will pray and prophesy. And prophecy, as we've seen, is a gift that is exercised in church for the benefit of a listening audience, a congregation. And so it does seem that Paul's already said something that suggests that he has no problem with women addressing the congregation, in certain ways anyway. So what's being said in verse 34 and 35? Well, here are some options. One is that Paul is really, he really is banning women from all public address of the church gathering, including prophecy. That this instruction kind of clarifies or supersedes what he said earlier. That's an option. Uh, Another option is to say that Paul is banning a certain kind of talking that women might have been doing in church. Uh, Possibly it's chatter, you know, chatter that is distracting and disruptive. People saying, I didn't hear what they said. Well, what is that? What's he talking about? Or is she talking about asking questions of their neighbours and getting into conversations? Now, there is a trouble with this, that the verb, the Greek verb used to talk, to denote speaking here, the verb laleo, in the time when 1 Corinthians was written, wasn't generally used to, to refer to chatter. So the scholars are a bit like, hmm, it's pushing the translation a bit to think of this as chattering, right? So there's another suggestion that possibly what's being talked about is the weighing of prophecy, the process of discrimination and assessment of what prophets were saying. That uh, Perhaps women were doing this disruptively, or perhaps it's not appropriate for women to do this. This is the reason for these verses. So there's, the first option is Paul is really banning women from all speech. Secondly, Paul is saying women stop talking in a certain kind of way. The third option is that Paul didn't say any of this actually, but that these verses are inserted by someone else who was keen to disallow women speaking in church. Now, all of these options have their problems in my view. Uh, Firstly, if Paul is banning women speaking, that, as I've pointed out, seems a little inconsistent with chapter 11, where he seems to allow women that You have a legitimate role of prophecy in church. Um, And it does seem slightly awkward in chapter 14 because chapter 14 is all about spiritual gifts, especially tongues and prophecy. It's about turn-taking for mutual edification, this passage, and a ban on all women speaking on grounds of, well, it seems like female subordination doesn't exactly cohere with what Paul is talking about elsewhere in this passage, right? It's a little awkward. Uh, secondly, the problems with the second view that Paul is banning a certain kind of female speaking, well, the problem there is that the interpretation relies on some kind of speculative reconstruction of the disgraceful female speech being banned. And so you're required to think, imagine, oh, maybe what's going on is that women are talking in the meeting and shouting out questions or 
Maybe what's going on is that the women are giving the prophets a hard time in this post-prophecy kind of assessment, right? But none of that is actually obvious in the passage. It's kind of something you imagine. Um, the passage seems more like a general injunction than a specific correction. So there's a problem there as well. The problem with the third one, that Paul didn't write this, that someone else just slipped it in, is that all our manuscripts and ancient copies all have these verses in it. There's no evidence to suggest this is a later insertion. If it were an insertion, it was very early. These verses, it must be said, are moved in a couple of manuscripts to, to appear after verse 40, and some people point to that as evidence. But the argument that it is slipped in by another in a later date has to be made actually on a judgment of how well what the verses say cohere with the passage and the letter. I, for one, think that messing with the received text of the Bible is something to do with great caution and great care because there is a danger that we will make up our own religion our own version of Christianity by cutting up the scriptures and saying, well, that bit, don't like that, that's got to go. And, and there's always going to be things that we find challenging in God's word to us and the temptation is to give ourselves permission just to throw things away we don't like. So I'm cautious. Now, you might say, enough with the scholarship, Ben. Like, you sound like you're reading out a book. Get practical. So let me try and finish with that. Now, the old-fashioned among us might still feel that female dignity in public situations is expressed in a certain reserve, a certain modesty, a certain reluctance to lead proceedings and become the object of public consumption. And so, if that's your sensibility, it may not trouble you too much, you may not buck against women's public speech being regulated in a way that this passage suggests. However, the newfangled, if you like, the other group, not the old-fashioned, but the newfangled, the newfangled among us will buck and say, why should female speech be limited? Aren't women every bit as good as men, with as much to contribute in public as well as in private? So what I suggest we do is we just step back and remember some very basic things the Bible says about men and women. Let me just take you back to the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1.27, which says of humanity, in the image of God, he created them. That is, God created us, human beings. In the image of God, further, male and female, he created them. Male and female are integral to humanity being in the image of God. Genesis 2.23 The man, when he first beholds the first woman, says this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That is the man recognises the woman as his kin as his peer the same stuff the one like me 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12, what Paul has said earlier in the letter, he says, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, 
so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. And so the one thing we can't do with the verses from 1 Corinthians 14 is imagine they could properly imply that women are merely secondary in the purposes and the mind of God. Rather, the relationship between men and women is kinship and interdependence at a fundamental level. There is, to be sure, a masculine dignity and a feminine dignity, which we do well to think about and acknowledge and express. But I suggest that in our time and place, there is nothing inconsistent with female dignity in women addressing the church. And women reading the Bible and leading the service and taking the prayers and exercising gifts of prayer and prophecy as happens here. Paul acknowledged many women who worked with him and in churches and he, they had his gratitude and his respect. And if you'd like to go home and read Romans 16, you'll see a list including Phoebe and Priscilla and Mary and Junia and Trophenia and Trophosa and Persis and others whom Paul acknowledges as his co-workers and expresses his esteem of their work. And so I will just close by repeating Paul's closing words in 1 Corinthians 14 for all of us. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. And do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for church and for the gathering that we all bring our gifts to. Our various gifts. And Lord, we thank you for those who are able to address the church for our building up in our faith, in our hope, in our love together. We pray for all the ways that gifts work, big and small. And we do pray that you would activate them amongst us. We thank you also for male and female and for the different places they serve in your purposes and their basic kinship and unity and interdependence. And so, Lord, we pray that we would get that right, we would understand it well and, and express it well in our own time and place and church. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.